Okay, well, uh, you can turn over to 1 Timothy if you haven't already done so. We're going to continue on here. And uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're getting close to uh, wheel stop here. We're coming to the end of our time together in 1 Timothy. It's always a little bit bittersweet to finish a book, but this has been a, a brief look, a shorter letter. But um, uh, Timothy has not disappointed us, has he? I mean, th- this is action-packed uh, thrills every Sunday of, of help. And um, I know with me that, that you would want to be a part of a healthy church. You would desire for our church, Grace Bible Church, to be a healthy church. And, and just like physical health, that doesn't just happen automatically. That there are things that we need to set our attention on and practices that we need to engage in, things we need to avoid even, uh, that would uh, help promote good spiritual health. And we've been learning some of those things from First Timothy. So uh, this morning is the morning you have your pop quiz. Um, and, and no, I'm, I'm not kidding. You do have a pop quiz. As I bring the, uh, the notes up here and share them with you on the, the PowerPoint, I would love to hear what are some of the things that you've learned over the last few weeks about spiritual health in a local church and uh, some of the things maybe that, that stand out to you about our time in First Timothy. Yes, very good, right? That's one of the themes, isn't it? The goal of our instruction is not to be nerdy, egghead, accurate theologians, although there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the, the goal is love, right? That we would love God and love neighbor well. And that's a great litmus test going into the next next year as we think about the new year and whatnot is, uh, do we love God more and do we love people better because of the things we've learned in our faith, because of our time in the Word, our Bible studies, our Sunday school classes, um, that's exactly it. So let's keep love as the focus, okay? Very good. What's, what's something else you learned? Yeah, that leaders in the church need to have strong character, that, that we don't, in fact, we're going to talk about it again today. We, we don't want to put uh, people in leadership uh, without being really careful. And, uh, you know, it, and it's not just in church, right? You know, none of us likes to be under leadership of, of shady integrity <laughs> or, or questionable character. And uh, when you have some, even if it's your plumber, Right? You want a plumber you can trust. You want a mechanic you can trust. You want a doctor you can trust. And you want them to be competent in whatever they're doing. And, uh, and that's true in the local church, right? Uh, to have men of character that, that lead. Someone else, what'd you learn? Beware of false teachers. Uh, in a fallen world, there are false teachers that we always have to look out for. And, you know, uh, false te- teachers may show up in our local church someday, and, and you know, maybe they've been here, and maybe we've addressed, I guess, you know, minor minor cases of that over the years. But wh- where do most false teachers congregate in 21st century American evangelicalism? Okay, I was on on TV. Uh, that's true. Although that is kind of 1995, uh, but yeah, no, yeah. There's there's some still on TV, but but where where do they show up? Where? YouTube. YouTube. Are you saying everything on YouTube is we can't trust that? If there, is that what you're saying? Can. Oh, you can. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's this is it. You know, when Paul wrote this, he's thinking about physical people coming into the a physical congregation, spreading you know verbal error. But today it is. It's it's when you see that that 
post on Facebook that has, you know, 3,292 likes and it's got some, you know, evangelical title that sounds interesting. You're like, ooh, that sounds interesting. Click, you know, and then you're over at, at, at uh, YouTube and you're watching something. It sounds interesting, right? It, they're using the Bible even. And, and, uh, and you realize that, uh, what is being promoted is, uh, 85% truth and 15% heresy. And you know, the, the devil is, uh, I think uh, Lewis talks about this in screw tape letters. You ever read screw tape? The devil is perfectly, uh, uh, perfectly okay with something that's mostly true and only a little bit of lies and error. So yeah, it's YouTube, it's Facebook, it, it's blog posts, you know, even guys, even from, um, so-called reliable websites. I just released a podcast, uh, this last week with Kevin Carson, who was here, uh, recently for our November counseling training. And he and I talked about, uh, the need to have spiritual discernment in what we listen to. So if you haven't, you haven't heard the podcast, it's our, it's our counseling center podcast. You can get on the website or the, um, the, um, your favorite podcast app and download that. But, but we have a great need for spiritual discernment today because we're inundated with messages all around us. And, uh, so be careful what you read. Uh, be careful what you buy into there. Okay, anything else that you uh, have learned along the way? Be a church who prays for one another and cares. Yeah, be a church who prays for one another and cares for one another. Those are core disciplines that... Uh... Oh, sorry. I'm getting messages here. So I heard what you said and then I got another message here. So that was weird. Okay. Uh, yes, be a church that prays for one another and cares for one another, that those are core practices, core disciplines uh, that ensures our health here. Okay, okay, well, with that in mind, uh, let's turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and let's pick it up where we have left off. We were talking last time about um, uh, caring for widows, caring for the least of these, and uh, those that truly have need in the local church ought to be a priority in terms of uh, our care that we offer them. We talked about the elders uh, and how we would receive an accusation against the elders. And then we also talked about uh, partiality and, and how we need to strive to not show partiality there. So let's, let's pick up our, our uh, text then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. I'll just start reading and we'll, we'll read the first little section here. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So let's just stop right there. That's kind of our first section. And um, did we enter the time warp or the, the, the EMAG warp here again, Drew? Okay. So um, you tell me if there's anything I can do to keep it from happening. So, um, you know, the God of this world controls electrons too. Did you know that? Okay. 
We'll talk about that later on. That's another message for another day. Okay, so what are we talking about here? Look on your notes there. We want to be dis- we want to be slow and discerning in, cho- in choosing leaders. This goes back to his discussion in First Timothy chapter three about the elders and the deacons in terms of their qualification, their character, their commitment, their skill set, and then on the heels of what he says in chapter five, verses seventeen and following, talking about the need to be careful. When someone brings a charge or an accusation against a formal leader in the church that, that we... Wow, okay. Um, I'm going to stand right here and we'll see if it gets any better, okay? And then you guys tell me if I get off my notes because my notes are over there and I'm here, Okay. Okay, so let's see if we can do this. Um, yeah, so, so coming on the heels of this idea that, that the elders who rule well are, are, are worthy of double honor and that we need to be careful if someone brings an accusation against elders that we uh, we don't want to just, you know, take that lightly, that there there's a process, there needs to be witnesses, there needs to be an appeal there, uh, because... Uh, the, the elders particularly have gone through a rigorous evaluation and qualification process, and therefore, as, as, a, as a part of the integrity of that position, uh, we, we don't want to let just anybody say anything negative without evidence and without witnesses. So on the heels of that conversation, he's going to come back to that in verse 22 now. He says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. What do you think he's talking about there? Okay, yeah, ordination, yeah, how many are familiar with ordination? And, and probably some of you are not, and that's okay. Okay, ordination, so, uh, in, in the New Testament, as, you, you, okay, back up just a little bit. So, as J- Jesus goes back to heaven, and he commissions his apostles to begin to spread the gospel around the world. And of course, the, the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, that initiates, uh, the local church. People begin to get saved, and then they scatter, and the gospel begins to go all over the uh, the region and into surrounding countries. Okay, so that's what's going on during the book of Acts. You notice that there's a leadership transition at the beginning of the book of Acts. The the Christianity and and the the churches are sort of being governed by the apostles, the eleven apostles, and then the twelfth is added there in chapter one of Acts uh, because Judas, uh, of course, uh, took his own life. And so on the front half of Acts, the 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 apostles are sort of calling the shots, sort of playing the quarterback position for the church as it grows. But you'll notice as Acts transitions and as local church are established, leadership moves from a global jurisdiction of the apostles to local elders in local churches. And you'll see that as you read your Bible reading plan, you work through Acts. So, so that's being established and... Um, one of the things that, that was a practice that developed was when an elder was identified either by an apostle or later on by fellow elders, they would lay their hands on uh, the man and pray over him. And, and that was a, uh, a symbolic way of, of communicating to the local church that this was a man who had been commissioned for gospel ministry as a pastor elder. And so you'll, you'll read that practice, uh, throughout, um, 
uh, up the, the book of Acts, and, and we read it even, uh, Paul talks about the laying on of hands of Timothy in this letter as well. Well, over time, that, that turned into something that we now call ordination. And ordination is when a man who's been identified as a potential elder pastor, he's been tested, he's been um, evaluated, uh, he's been prayed for, uh, he's been... Um, you know, uh, gone through this this process. At the end of all that, when a church is going to sort of formally identify him as a new elder pastor, they will lay hands on him, and identifying that this is somebody we believe is called to that gospel ministry, and we call that ordination. And different churches do that differently. Uh, typically, when we identify a new elder, I, I think. Um, when uh, when Don Dietrich came on our elder board and and the uh, elders gathered and we prayed for him that that would be our version of of an ordination, uh, but that's what that term refers to. And 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 where do we get that? We get that from language like what we just read. We don't when it says we don't want to lay hands on somebody too hastily. What that's saying is, hey, tap the brakes when it comes to your eagerness to put somebody into that elder pastor role or that deacon role. Not that we don't need to do that, but we want to be methodical, we want to be careful, we want to be meticulous, we want to be prayerful. And uh, that goes back to what one of you said about the integrity of local leaders. What happens sometimes is we take somebody who seems to be gifted, who seems to be real personable, and we put them in leadership without doing what first? What's that? Vetting them. How about just getting to know them? You know, uh, and, and notice, listen, listen to the argument here, okay? We, we've talked about, he's talked, back in chapter uh, 3, he talked about you don't want to put a new convert, someone who's a brand new Christian, into a leadership role because the temptation to pride is too great. So don't do that. But listen to the logic here. Go back to chapter 5. Look at verse uh, 24. He says, um, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. But listen to this. But for others, their sins follow after. Now that's connected to what he's talking about when he says don't lay hands on somebody too quickly. Don't ordain them for formal leadership too quickly. What is, how does that connect? What is he saying there about sins before and sins after? Yeah, it takes time for character to be revealed. Sometimes you meet people and you go, yeah, they got some issues. You know, their sins, as it says there in verse 24, are quite evident because they go before them. They're obvious. But other times, uh, a man may not be who he appears to be, but you don't see it right away, do you? You got to give it time. And so that's what he's saying is, don't be in a hurry to do this because sometimes a potential leader that might look good on the front end is somebody you just need to get to know better and you want to see consistent. You know this. Um, how many were married? Raise your hand. You married? Okay. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to say this charitably, but uh, was there anything... Good or bad, right or wrong, is there anything that you learned about your spouse after your wedding day? Okay? Now, how did that happen? Because, you know, you're going to marry this person. I'm sure you vetted them really well, right? So how'd that happen? Answer, it took some time. 
Remember what Jesus said? The sower goes out to, to sow and he's throwing you know, seed all over the place. There's four different grounds. And uh, you know, one of them, the thing just never sprouts up, right? It's just, it just, you know, the birds come and take it away. There's no plant ever. But three of the four soils produced what looked like spiritual life, right, initially. And you go, wow, three out of four isn't bad. And then what happened? Yeah, one gets choked. One burns in the sun indicating that, I mean, the one that was dead was dead, right? But two of the three that sprouted up were not true evidences of real Christianity in, in his story there. So what, what's the point? What's one of the takeaways there? There is no substitute for time when it comes to evaluating somebody's character, evaluating their spiritual condition. Time is what you need to see the evidence of fruit, to see character, to look at somebody in all sorts of different settings of life. That, that's why that's why the, the honeymoon phase of, of the marriage is, is so challenging, right? Because we're still living in bliss. And then that gets overcome with, you know, laundry and electric bills and car repairs and medical issues, right? And that's how it happens. And that's where you see the character of the person more clearly, don't you? So the point is we want to be really careful who we lay hands on and we don't want to do that too quickly. Uh, we want to be slow in discerning and choosing leaders. Uh, th- th- this is not, this is related to pastor elders, but can I tell you another just application of this in our church? Um, and if you're new to our church, uh, this may be something that, that is, um, uh, you haven't heard of. We, we have a six month waiting period for anybody that wants to work with children in our church. Even people we know. You say, why is that? Because we're trying to give it time. We, we, we stand on a verse like this that says, we, we want to really know the character of the people that work with our kids, especially. Uh, and so we do that in other ministries as well. But that's what we're trying to do. So be slow and discerning in choosing leaders. And uh, there's, one, there's one little note. You, you thought I was going to skip it, right? No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the ear. Like, is that in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Um, and, and don't freak out about this because we need to have a whole other conversation someday about alcohol in the Bible because there's there's lots of misunderstanding there. So we'll we'll have fun with that another day. But but suffice it to say here, what 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 do you think he's actually saying about using wine instead of water exclusively? What, what's yeah, Mike? What's he talking about? Yeah, yeah. You you didn't want to drink the water. Um, that was, you know, just available there because it wasn't clean or sanitary by today's standards. In fact, uh, maybe some of you have, have traveled to foreign countries like I have, where they actually tell you, you know, modern countries in, in, in the 21st century, it's like, don't drink the tap water. Don't even brush your teeth in the tap water. You know, in the hand, you a little bottle of water or something like that. And I've probably been to two or three countries in the last 10 years where even, even the plumbing that they have in the house, the water quality isn't quite up to par. So uh, th- this was um, uh, th- this this was a chemical way by putting a little bit of wine in your drinking water. That wine would act as a purifying agent to the water, killing some of the bacteria or or other things that might have been resident there that was making Timothy's stomach upset. And uh, so that's what's going on here. Okay, so that that's the application. 
Um, he, he's not saying, hey, you know, go drink alcohol. That's great. We'll talk about that conversation another day. What he's saying here is uh, the alcohol was, was being used as a, a cleansing agent to purify the water and help, uh, help Mr. Timothy with his stomach issues in the days before Tums. Uh, that's what you did, I guess. So, Okay. All right. So be slow in discerning about choosing leaders. Number two. We need to think about masters and slaves who should seek to honor God in their relationships. Let's look at chapter 6 now. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters, listen to this, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and constant friction between men of depraved mind and those who are deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of gain, of great gain, when it is accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Let's just uh, stop right there. So he's talking here about master and slave relationships, and we see this in a lot of the New Testament letters. We, we know that a form of slavery existed in the first century, uh, different than the slavery that existed in Europe later on, different than the slavery that existed in our country, but nonetheless a form of slavery. And again, maybe that's another whole talk for another day about how do we think about slavery in the Bible, and you know, did, did God advocate that? Was he just... Permiss, you know, allowing it, but he wasn't really in favor of it. And we'll, we'll talk about that another day. But, but what, what he's talking about here is when you're in a relationship with somebody in your workplace who is a fellow believer, how should, should you relate to them? And of course, he's going to talk in, in Ephesians and Colossians, you know, uh, you know, the other way, when, when you're, uh, when you're a master, when you're the employer and you have employees uh, that are um, believers, you know how do you how do you treat them there? So, so look at what he says here in chapter six, verse one. He says, "All who are under yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them." So what he's saying is how you relate in your workplace, to your boss or employer, in biblical times, a lot of times that that employment happened in a master-slave relationship. There were others that were not in that context. But Paul's just saying, how are you going to relate to that boss? And uh, and what's the admonition here? What, what does he say? You're a Christian. How should you do that? What's that? Okay. Yeah, do everything as under the Lord. Yeah. Have, you, have we, you know, we, we've talked a lot in this book about 
it's about a healthy church, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to address the problems uh, that we see that Paul's trying to address the problems to Timothy that he sees in the church of Ephesus. We're, we're looking at this book as a standpoint of saying we can learn to be a healthy church in this way. Healthy churches depend upon harmony between believers. Would you agree with that? That's why we talked about praying. That's why we talked about leaders. That's why we talked about getting along in other contexts. So, so imagine this. You've got an employer, and uh, you both go to the same church. And we all know, because there's no such thing as a perfect boss, that I bet you could all raise your hands and say, yeah, there's some things about the way the boss runs things around here that I don't really agree with. Would you, would you all say there's probably some things like that? Well, what happens then in the body of Christ when we allow a disunity or a disrespectfulness to grow between employer and employee or master and slave as it was in the ancient day, what happens at that point to our effectiveness as a local church? This is the part where you talk. What happens? Yeah, there's going to be friction. Yeah, the unbelievers are going to say, why would I want to be... And you can understand the scenario. You have a master and slave relationship, both become Christians. And that slave goes, okay, we can just kind of set this relationship aside, right? We're just kind of on equal playing field. And, and you could see employees not showing respect, not showing honor to their bosses or their, their masters in that context because of the common faith in Christianity. And what Paul's saying is we should actually argue just the opposite. It's because they are fellow brothers, because they are fellow Christians, that we ought to show them honor and respect and, and work extra hard knowing that we have a relationship in Christ that is the closest relationship we can possibly have with another human being. Uh, in, in the family of God. So, so he says, uh, show them honor, right? They're worthy of all honor. Uh, so that, and he says, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. That goes back to what Carl was saying, that you know, we, we don't want people that are looking at Christianity saying, man, what, a, what an unhealthy work environment. Because they see bad attitudes happening between Christians in the workplace. So he says, don't do that. Instead, verse 2, he says, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So we want to see a relationship there that brings God glory and is attractive to unbelievers. Okay. Number three, we want to avoid doctrine which does not agree with Christ or does not conform one to godliness. This goes back. The goal of our instruction is what? Okay. So Paul's going to use that now as a litmus test. And this is really, really insightful. He's going to say, um, how's your doctrine? Do you know how you know your doctrine? The answer is, what does your doctrine produce? Look at this. Look at verse 3. We read some of this a moment ago. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, and then he defines it here. What You say, what's the different doctrine? And does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing 
but he has morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and those who are deprived of the truth. Now just stop right there. He wrote that before the internet. I mean, is that not a description of a lot of theological dialogue on the internet today? Controversial issues, disputes about words that lead to envy, strife, conceit, and abusive language. Isn't that horrible? So, so here, here's the, here's the test. Does my study of doctrine lead me to be more like Christ? or to be less like him. And you know, it is um, it is shocking that a study of the things of God, the study of scripture and theology, can actually lead to arrogance instead of humility. Can actually lead to abusive language instead of to charity can actually lead to focusing on controversial issues, you know, nitpicking for Jesus instead of a doctrine conforming to godliness. You know, I, I, I see this in my own heart. I don't know if you do. It is easy when you learn something that's true and there's somebody else that takes a different view and you're like, I'm going to go show them, you know, right? I, I remember in seminary, learning things and this welling up of pride i can read greek now i can read hebrew now you know right and um remember what paul says in in first corinthians he says um knowledge if you're not careful will puff you up but love edifies doesn't it so we go right back to where we started. The very first chapter, right? The goal of our instruction is love. Which means, if we think about spiritual health, we, we want to stand on solid doctrine, right? We, we want to take theology seriously. We want to be precise and particular and accurate in everything we believe, everything we teach. And I think by God's grace at Grace Bible Church, we do that pretty well. But you know what that makes us particularly prone to? in terms of temptation being prideful Christians being critical Christians um, and not infusing in our right pursuit of sound doctrine a growing love for Christ and neighbor and this, this overwhelming and this is it guys it's this overwhelming notion that God is so kind to teach us these things and to show us these things and to favor us with good theology and teaching and resources and books. That ought to humble us, not make us arrogant. So we got to be careful. We got to be careful in our, in our Facebook exchanges. We got to be careful in our blog posts. We got to be careful uh, when we're talking to friends. You know, we're coming up in the holiday season. It's, it's so easy to just get in an argument with a family member over something. You, and you, and you, you love them, right? You, you love them and you want their heart for Jesus and you want to see them become believers. But you know, I've, it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. That can just spiral into something that's ungodly and unhelpful. So we need to be careful. Uh, Paul says, here's the test, right? You want to know how it works? 
You know you're in the wrong spot doctrinally when you have teaching that Christ did not teach and teaching that does not produce godliness. Those are your criteria. Not biblical, doesn't lead to godliness. Now now notice when he says there, uh, the doctrine, uh, the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's not saying... That if Jesus didn't say it, we shouldn't believe it. Some people misunderstand that. You, you ever met Christians that come to the door and they accept the Gospels, but they don't accept the rest of the New Testament? You, you ever met people like that? This is one of the verses that they misuse. They, they, they think that what Paul, they think that what is authoritative in a letter of Paul, that's a whole nother, you know, they're cutting off the branch that they're sitting on, really. But uh, what he's saying is not that Jesus, if Jesus didn't teach it, we dismiss it, so we dismiss most of the New Testament. What he's saying is Christ did not teach it, meaning it's, it's not divinely inspired teaching. I mean, after all, this is the same Paul that in his next letter to Timothy is going to say all Scripture is breathed out by God. So what, what, what he's saying is the doctrine that conforms to the sound words of Jesus would be doctrine that is biblical. It, it comes from the God-inspired Bible. And so we have to be careful about this. Um, let me ask you this. Are there any controversial Christian issues today that believers feel very strongly about? But they're not in the Bible. Just nod your head. Yes, Pastor Keith. Yes, they are. They, they, they definitely there are issues. Okay. Is it okay to have strong opinions about moral issues, wisdom issues? Is it okay to have strong opinions? Absolutely. We ought to. In fact, the Bible's going to say, "Be convinced in your own mind about those things." But when that leads to arrogance and abusive language and envy, and jealousy, and ungodliness. We're out of bounds, aren't we? So we need to be careful. There's a difference between saying, thus saith the Lord, that's a hill to die on, according to the Bible, and a wisdom issue, a preference issue, an opinion issue, that we all ought to have. And it all ought to be based on what we know in Scripture. But charity and patience and deference and love for neighbor ought to guide how we communicate that opinion and what we do with that. Do you guys know most churches divide and dissolve, not because someone gets up one morning and denies the Trinity, but because they have a strong opinion on a preference issue that they have determined is really a hill to die on, a gospel issue, and it divides the church. So if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to make a really clear distinction between biblical doctrine and preference and wisdom issues. And if it's a preference or wisdom issue, we need to be deferential and kind and charitable toward one another. While still, you know what? We should argue for our position. I should be able to sit down with, with George or, or Rob or, or, um, you know, anyone here. And we can, we can have a, a spirited, loving debate about those things. We should. And then we're going to say we love each other and we're going to go, you know, hang out at Grumps the rest of the afternoon. We should be able to do that. But these aren't hills to die on and these are the things that can destroy our church if we're not careful. 
So the two tests. Number one, Christ did not teach it. Let's, let's distinguish a biblical issue from a non-biblical issue. And of course, we've talked about some of these things, right? Um, watch yourself, guys. Watch, when you start hearing things like this, controversial questions and disputes about words. Um, he said back in chapter 2, uh, uh, he talked about, um, where was it here? Uh, you know, some of the things that the false teachers were teaching, advocating, right? They're talking about abstaining marriage and, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, men that forbid marriage advocate abstaining from foods. Uh, th- those are non-biblical issues. So we need to be careful. What's the second test? Christ did not teach it. That's the first test. What's the second test? It does not produce godliness in people. Do you know that you can be correct on paper and sinful in practice when it comes to a doctrinal issue. This is really profound if you think about this. You can be orthodox in what you're saying you believe and ungodly and sinful in how you're thinking about it, in how you're communicating it, how you're using it. This is, guys, here's what he's saying. He's saying doctrine is not just about a position you take. Doctrine is about how you live. Doctrine is not just about uh, being able to, to pass a Sunday school quiz. It's about how you relate to people, how you communicate, how you engage in sharing that opinion. Is that, is that amazing? It, it's not about I got an A on my theology test. It's do I look more like Jesus in my personal life and in how I relate to other, other people because I believe what I believe. So, so you ready for this? There are orthodox heresies. There are unbelievers that hold to right doctrine. Because right doctrine is about how you live just as much as what you say you believe. And that's what he's arguing. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 It's the same thing. This is all over the Bible, isn't it? So, so we, we've, we've got to get out of this mode that says, I'm right and that's all that matters. Yes, we want to be right doctrinally, but we want to be more like Christ even more. And so we need to watch over our hearts. Watch for that arrogant spirit. Watch for that critical spirit. Watch for that judgmentalism. Watch for that holier than thou. Uh, be careful. We, what, what does Paul say in Ephesians? We want to speak truth packaged in love. Because the goal of our instruction is love, right? Okay, so look at this. Yeah, you get the idea, right? He, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, co- constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Now listen to this. Here's another element. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So this goes back to what he says about the elders being worthy of double honor and how we handle accusations. What were some of the elders that were wrong in the church of Ephesus? Why were they pursuing that office, according to this verse? They wanted to get financial gain. 
They said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to seminary, I'm going to be a pastor, because I am going to enjoy the financial benefits of that. And Paul says, well, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up, because godliness is a great means of gain when it's coupled with contentment. You see what he's saying? Pursue godliness because godliness, Christ-likeness, is valuable. But don't look at a role in the local church as a means of financial gain to the detriment of what it's really about. So that's the second thing on your on your uh, outline there. Let's pride is one root of that false doctrine. We, we I guess we mentioned that I didn't put it on the notes there. He is conceited and understands nothing. Right? We want to be careful guarding a heart of pride and arrogance in regard to sound doctrine. But notice this. A desire to get rich is another root of false doctrine. Studying theology, wanting to be an elder pastor, coming into the local church, thinking that godliness is a means of financial gain. And Paul says, yes, godliness is a means of gain. Christ-likeness is valuable. But look at this. It has to be coupled with contentment. So we're pursuing sound doctrine. We're pursuing Christ-likeness for the sake of those things. We're, we're not, and this is, this is hard to say because this is a part of what I do for a living. Um, I, I'm shocked regularly just reading articles and hearing news about why people go into full-time ministry. And I wish it was... I wish I could tell you it was because they love Jesus and they love people and they want to make a difference eternally. And I would think most brother pastors, that's where their heart is. But there, there are guys that pursue ministry for the power, for the control, for the finances, for the status. And it breaks my heart. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. You've got elders that have come into the church and they're looking at it as a means of financial gain. Paul says, no, godliness is a means of gain, but it has to be coupled with contentment. Being an elder pastor is not primarily a pursuit for riches. And And by the way, that's why he's going to talk about the the deceitfulness of riches here in a minute. That's where it starts. Verse 7, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. In verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Who's he still talking about? He's still talking about the false teachers. He's talking about some of the, some of the likely elders in the church that were pursuing ministry as a means of financial gain. And he's saying that's a slippery slope. That's, that's going to take you to destruction. And here, here's, that, here's that often misquoted verse, verse 19, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So he says godliness should be accompanied by contentment. Godliness is a, is, is a means of great gain uh, when it's accompanied by contentment, but desiring wealth leads to destruction. And that's one of the things that was happening in the local church. Okay, so we'll we'll save this next point for next time, but suffice it to say that if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to pursue godliness because Christ likeness is valuable and not look at uh, positions uh, as some other means of financial gain uh, 
And all the while, if we can just remember this, that the goal of our instruction is love. It's a doctrine conforming to godliness. And if we can, if we can stay there, that's going to keep us from, from getting into these other temptations that Paul is warning us about. So, so, so let's be orthodox in our doctrine, but let's be Christ-like in our life as well. And that'll help ensure uh, the health of our church that we long to have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. We're grateful uh, for this letter that has showed us some of the pitfalls and roadblocks that will keep us uh, from enjoying the spiritual health that you would desire us to have. Lord, especially, would you guard our hearts from, from arrogance and pride, even over true doctrine? Will you help us to distinguish between things that are biblical and things that are just preference and wisdom issues? And above all, to remember the goal of our instruction is love, to love you and love our neighbor, and that that love would infiltrate and affect and guide every conversation, every Facebook post, every phone call, every tweet, that we... We would exemplify the character of Christ in our dialogue, even as we aim to stand for the doctrine of Christ in our witness. So give us grace in these things. Guard our hearts. Uh, make us to be more humbled by knowing you and not be arrogant. Uh, we love you. We need your grace in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.